Now this morning we continue on in the Gospel of John and we come to what is probably one of the best known Bible verses of all time, John 3.16. If you've been in church very long, you may have heard John 3.16 so much that you might be tempted to be tired of it or to just tune it out as so much old news that you've already heard. We've heard that once, let's, let's move on to, to something else. But I would suggest to you that the reason why you've heard John 3.16 so much in your time in church or during your Christian life is the very reason why you need to hear it again today. You've heard this verse so much because it is an apt summary of the gospel. You've heard it so much because it actually is important. And that's why we need to hear it again today. And so let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 3. We'll be this morning in John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe has been condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Now these verses that we have just read tell us the why of salvation. Why does it exist? It it tells us how our salvation was accomplished. It tells us how this salvation is received. It tells us the current status of both believers and of unbelievers. It tells us why people sometimes avoid this great salvation that is offered so freely in Jesus Christ. And so as we consider this passage this morning, we'll come with five questions in mind. Number one, why does salvation exist? Number two, how was salvation accomplished? Number three, how is salvation received? Four, why do people reject this salvation? Number five, what is the difference between those who do believe and those who do not? So number one, again, those are, why does salvation exist? Number two, how was it accomplished? Number three, how is it received? Number four, why do people reject it? And number five, what is the difference between those who believe and those who do not? And so first of all, Why does salvation exist? Why does this even exist in the world? The world that we live in is fomenting in rebellion against Almighty God and has been doing so for about 6,000 years since the days of the Garden of Eden. We as individuals and we collectively as people in the world are so wicked in the sight of God, to put it simply. Ephesians 2 describes us perfectly. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, 
According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them too, and we too, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. This is all of us, apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Dead in sin, loving sin, walking in sin, wallowing in sin. And so the question is, why Why would God save any one of us? Why would he not just condemn us all and get us out of his sight as so many evil traitors against his righteous authority and rule? Why would he save anyone? The beginning of verse 16 gives us the answer. For God so loved the world. That's why God saves sinners from eternal ruin. For God so loved the world. And we should let these words have their full effect because the world is both a very big place and a very bad place. And God so loved the world that he took pity on the world and sent a Savior to them. We heard in our call to worship this morning from Psalm 145. Psalm 145 verse 9 tells us that the Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. There is in this a a general love of God toward mankind. God so loved the world. And it's interesting, I think, that we find the language about God loving the world in the Gospel of John, of all places. In the writings of John, the terminology of the world is usually used in reference to the badness of the world, in reference to the world as the system that is united in its rebellion against God. And so we find the words of Christ in John 15, 18 and 19, where Christ says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. The world hates Jesus. The world hates the followers of Jesus. Jesus chose his followers out of the world. And along similar lines, John can speak of the world in such disparaging terms as we find in 1 John 2, 15 and following, where John says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing away, as also its lusts. But the one who does the will of the Father lives forever. The point is the world is a bad place. It's a bad place in the terminology of Jesus. It's a bad place in the terminology of the Apostle John. And this is all the more reason why it is so amazing that God loves the world. Now, whereas we're commanded not to love the world in the sense of enjoying and reveling in its sinful pleasures because it is opposed to God, God loves the world in the sense of taking pity and compassion on Hardened and sinful rebels. And God demonstrates his general love to all mankind in different ways. He does it by providing for our physical needs and by allowing us to partake of simple joys of living on this earth that he has made. Though the earth has fallen and under the curse of God, nevertheless, God still gives to all men and women certain blessings of this life. Christ put it this way in the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, But I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous 
and the unrighteous. In other words, Christ's call for us to love our enemies is based on the love that God has for his enemies who are still hostile to him. God does good to them. God demonstrates his love and kindness to them. And this likewise was what Paul was getting at when he said to those idolaters in Lystra in Acts 14, 16, and 17, where he said, In generations God permitted all nations to go on their way, yet he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good and gave you rains and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God loves even idolaters and satisfies their hearts with food and gladness. This is the love of God in general for mankind. But the love of God goes even deeper than simply giving men of the world the elements of food and gladness. There's also a true compassion in the heart of God for sinners. And this is why we read such things as we read earlier today in Ezekiel, where the Lord says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? And likewise, we see this compassion for the rebellious in the behavior of our Lord Jesus, even toward those who rejected him. When Jesus met that rich young ruler who was inquiring about what he must do to inherit eternal life, Mark tells us, Mark 10.21, that Jesus felt a love for him. And this was a man who, just a few moments later, walked away from Jesus because he was unwilling to part with his stuff. This man was getting ready to, to walk away from Jesus. Jesus certainly knew that ahead of time. But nevertheless, he felt a love for this man. Likewise, we see this in Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem when he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. In this we see the love of God for the world, the love of God and of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for sinners. And this is really quite amazing that God would love such a wicked people as those of us who cover the earth. But God does love the world. And so since God loved the world so much, we find that he took action. He did something about it. The world is sunk in sin and can do nothing in order to put itself in favor with God. And then God stepped in and took action with loving concern. And that brings us then to the second question we're considering this morning. Namely, how was salvation accomplished? And according to the text, the love of God for the world is so great that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his only son. And what this means then is that the son of God humbled himself to become a man for us and for our salvation. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God to be grasped, but emptied himself he didn't empty himself of his divinity. He couldn't do that. He remained the eternal Son of God, eternally divine, but yet emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being made in the likeness of men. As we saw back in John chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's how this took place. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. 
God sent his son into the world as a man. And what was the purpose of it? What was the purpose of sending the only begotten son into the world? Verse 17 describes it as saying that God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. This is God's purpose in sending the son, not to, not to judge or to condemn the world, but to send salvation to it. Now, the second coming of our Lord will be for judgment. It will be for condemnation. But his first advent, his first coming, is for salvation and not for judgment. And this is the very same world that had rejected God. Men and women had spurned both general revelation from God and also special revelation from God. They had spurned God as he revealed himself in nature and they had given themselves over to abominable idolatries and immoralities and murders and thefts and all the rest. Even though they knew in their hearts that those who practice such things deserve death, they still did those things. And if that were not bad enough, it gets even worse. Some people had rejected not only God's revelation in nature, but they had also rejected the very word of God that was given to them through the prophets. They had either heard the prophets preach or had read the writings of Moses and the prophets and then essentially threw it behind their backs. And how often do we see this replayed time and again in the Old Testament history? The people heard the word of God, they had it written for them, and yet rejected it. We read of that one king in the book of Jeremiah who was, was cutting it up with a knife and throwing it into the, the charcoal burning fire, literally burning the word of God. And this is just that kind of aggravated rejection that Stephen charges the Sanhedrin with in Acts chapter 7 where he says, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now Stephen says there that their fathers had persecuted the prophets. It killed them. And now they were the ones who had killed Christ. He said that they had received the law as it were ordained by angels. They received it outwardly, but they didn't keep it. The murder of the prophets is a high-handed rejection of the word of God. The receiving of the law and yet failing to keep it is a sly and hypocritical rejection of the word of God. And This is what the world is like. This is the way it was in the first century, and it is not too different today. The world rejects God's natural revelation and his special revelation, gives itself up to immoralities of all kinds, and gives itself over to idolatries of all kinds, either the idolatry of worshiping some image or the idolatry of atheism or the idolatry of materialism. This is the world then and now. And again, this is why this passage is actually so amazing and incredible, because it is this kind of people in this kind of world that the holy God and righteous judge loved so much that he gave his only begotten son, that he sent him into the world. He sent him not to condemn the world, but to bring salvation to it. And not only did this involve the humility of the Son of God by His incarnation, by Him submitting to taking on a human body and uniting that to Himself, but it went further than that, to Him humbling Himself, to becoming obedient to death. Not just any kind of death. Dying is bad enough as it is, but it was death on the cross. And it's even worse than that. Because lots of people were crucified by the Romans, but Jesus' crucifixion was actually worse than theirs. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he was 
bearing our sins in his own body on the tree as a substitute. Nobody else did that when they died on a cross. Jesus, Scripture tells us, was made a curse for us. It's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, and Christ's curse was worse than any other. When Jesus died, God was, in the words of 2 Corinthians 5.21, making him who knew no sin to be sin for us, making him to be a sin offering for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was taking upon himself the full fury of the wrath of God, taking hell upon himself for us. He was cut off from the Father. The words of Psalm 22, verse 1, were finally and most fully fulfilled in the agony of our Lord Christ when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken by the Father. And Jesus knew up front that all of this was coming his way. And that's why he prayed so fervently in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. This is why his sweat became like drops of blood. Jesus knew that in the upcoming few hours of time, he'd be suffering the wrath of God to such an extent that his atonement and sacrifice would be sufficient for all of the sins of the entire world. And that was the kind of death that Jesus died. That's what it means that God sent his only begotten son. But thank God he didn't stay dead. There was the glorious resurrection that followed. As Peter put it in Acts 2, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. This is the Father's stamp of approval, as it were, upon the work of Christ, that Christ had satisfied the wrath of God for sinners and that the work was completed. And then after spending 40 days with his apostles and other witnesses, Christ then ascended back to the right hand of God the Father, and now waits for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. So this is, this is what verses 16 and 17 mean when we read that he gave his only begotten son and that God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. It's the whole history of the gospel, from the virgin conception and birth of Jesus Christ all the way through his sinless life, his atoning death, his resurrection, his ascension. God gave his only begotten son and sent him into the world. This is how God took action based on his love for the world. This is how God accomplished all that is necessary for our salvation. God did the work from first to last. And this then brings us to the third question. How do we receive this salvation? We've seen that God so loves the world, and that's the reason why salvation exists. We've seen that God gave His only begotten Son, and that's how salvation was accomplished for us. But then how do we receive it? Is everyone automatically saved because God so loved the world and sent His Son so that the world might be saved through Him? Is everybody automatically saved? Or do we have to do some great thing in order to receive it? Or do we have to do some small thing? in order to receive it. How do we receive this salvation? The passage is very clear that this salvation is received through faith. And so we read in verse 16 that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Likewise, in verse 18, we read that he who believes in him is not judged. And thus it is clear that this salvation is accomplished for us by what Christ has done 
and that it is not received by everyone automatically. Instead, this salvation is received through faith. And even this faith, this belief in Christ, is a gift of God's grace. Faith is not, in other words, a, a bargaining chip that we bring to the table. It's not as if God had lowered the market, so to speak, and said, well, the original standard was perfection, but since I know you're not perfect, I'll lower the bar. And if you just bring faith to the table, if you can bring that much, then you will be saved. That's not what salvation by faith means. In and of ourselves, we couldn't even meet the demand of the lowered market. We couldn't even bring faith in and of ourselves. Instead, God does everything in salvation, even giving us the grace to believe. He does this by causing us to be born again, as we considered last week in the earlier part of of John 3. The Apostle Paul took it for granted that every good thing that we have is a gift that has been received from God. And therefore, he says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And the implied answer, of course, Paul is getting at is everything that we have received is a gift. Therefore, we have no grounds for boasting at all. And so then this salvation is received by faith. And so what does this mean? What kind of faith, what kind of belief is in view? Saving faith means receiving Christ as Lord and resting upon him as Savior. To borrow the language of the Second Helvetic Confession, saving faith is a most firm trust and a clear and steadfast assent of mind and then a most certain apprehension of the truth of God. Saving faith means believing the facts of the gospel as they are presented to us in Scripture. It means giving our assent to them. And then it also means that we entrust ourselves to Jesus and we rest in Him because of who He is. Now, it's possible for you to have the right facts and to give assent to the facts, which is to say that you agree with those facts and yet not place trust in the reality those facts are describing. For instance, I could have an accurate knowledge of of airplanes and believe, in theory, that people get on them and fly to another destination and arrive safely, but that's just simply me giving assent to the facts. I don't have to actually trust an airplane at that point. It's all, it's all just theoretical. I'm just believing something about an airplane. It's only when I actually get on an airplane and that airplane leaves the ground that I'm actually declaring my trust in that plane. It is then that by my actions I'm saying my safety is bound up with this plane. If this plane goes down, I go down. If this plane does well, I do well. And so it is with saving faith. It's not just believing the facts of the gospel, that Jesus was born, that Jesus died for sinners, that Jesus rose again, though that is a necessary component of it. You have to believe those things. You must believe that God sent his only son into the world, that he died and rose again. But if you simply believe those things from a distance, you don't have saving faith. Saving faith is when you recognize that your eternal well-being and safety is bound up with Jesus and these true facts about him. Saving faith is when you entrust yourself, body and soul, to Jesus Christ because of the truth of these gospel facts. You bow down at his feet, as it were, and say, Lord, you are my only hope. I abandon all other attempts to save myself. My safety and salvation is bound up with you. If you don't save me, then nothing else will. Apart from your mercy, I'm going to hell. 
And we demonstrate that faith then by turning from sin and seeking to obey Christ and submit to him in all that he has taught us. This is saving faith. This is the kind of faith by which we lay hold of Christ, as it were, and trust in him as the one who forgives our sins and then receive from him a righteousness, righteousness which is not our own, but a righteousness which he has earned by his sinless life and then freely gives to us. And it is this kind of faith and this kind of faith alone that saves. Now certainly, saving faith will not be alone. It will not be unfruitful. It will be full of good fruit and of good works. It will be a faith that works by love, as Paul says in Galatians 5, 6. But we can rightly conclude that if there are no works, there's actually no faith there. But it is faith alone that saves. And it's faith alone by which we lay hold of Christ, by which our sins are forgiven, and by which His righteousness becomes ours, imputed, credited to us. And before we move on, let me just stop and ask you, what is your relationship this morning to Jesus Christ? Do you have this kind of saving faith? Or is your belief in Christ belief that is from a distance, belief that is simply intellectual, simply giving assent to the historicity of the gospel facts will not save you? The demons believe these facts, and they shudder. What the demons don't do and won't do is entrust themselves to Jesus Christ for salvation, and that's what saving faith does. Saving faith believes the facts of what Christ has accomplished and rests itself in Jesus for salvation. It says, I have nothing to offer or contribute, and I am nothing, but I know that Jesus is the Savior And I entrust myself to him because I know there is no other way but by him. This is the faith described by Augustus Toplady in Rock of Ages. One of the uh, verses, I guess, in the the way it was laid out is is one that's kind of a combination of verses in the the way that, that we sing it and some of the words we don't sing, unfortunately. But one of the verses says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. This is saving faith right there. And in the preaching of the gospel this morning, I call upon you to believe in Jesus with that kind of faith. The kind of faith that believes the truth of the facts that we've been considering this morning about who Jesus is and what he has done. And that you entrust yourself to him for salvation. That you receive him as Savior And submit to Him as Lord and rest in Him because of who He is and what He has accomplished for us. And if you're here today and you do believe in Jesus, I want to call upon you to remember the mercies of the gospel afresh. The Lord who has saved you in this way that we've been describing is still the same Lord. And He is still just as merciful, just as gracious today as he was on the day you were saved. And you're still saved now as you were then, by grace alone, through faith alone, and not by your works, not by your feelings, not by anything else, but by grace through faith. And so allow this this message, this wonderful and refreshing message, to refresh and encourage you. If you're just tired, 
you're discouraged or if you're feeling burned out. This gospel is good news for those who are weary and heavy laden, for those who feel caught up in the rat race of life, whether you feel this way before you're saved or whether you feel this way after you're saved. The good news is that the one who believes in Jesus is not condemned. If you believe in Christ, then what that means is the worst thing that stood against you, your sins and ultimately judgment and condemnation, that worst thing has been dealt with. And it also means that the best possible thing that could have ever happened to you already has happened to you. You've escaped judgment and you've received eternal life. You've received a new life that begins here, now, and goes on forever and ever for eternity. Eternal life. Paul put it so well in Romans eight thirty-one, and later on, verses 38 and 39, he said, If God is for us, who is against us? For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so rejoice then that this salvation is yours if you're in Christ and rest in Him and in Him alone. And so the salvation is, is received by a free gift according to our text that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. He who believes in Him is not judged. And notice the, the broadness of that statement. Whoever believes One of the reformers rightly noted, he has employed the universal term, whosoever, both to invite all indiscriminately to partake of life and to cut off every excuse from unbelievers. And so, in short, we can allow this universal nature of the words here, whosoever, to to give us great confidence in our evangelism as we seek to share the gospel with others. We can have absolute certainty that We can say to anyone that if they will believe in Jesus, they will be saved. This is the promise of the gospel. As we find in Acts 17, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. The call of the gospel is a universal call. It's to go out indiscriminately to all. Shame on us if we restrict the extent to which that message is proclaimed. Because we read here that God's loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, if the people of this world will perish in unbelief, what they can never say is that God did not send his son to be the savior of the world. What they cannot say is that the sacrifice of Christ was insufficient for them or that they desired to be saved by Christ, but that Christ would not save them. Christ says in John 6.37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Christ will not cast out the one who comes to him. But as we all know from sad experience, not everyone comes to Christ. Not everyone receives this great gift of salvation. There are many who live and die as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly and their glory and their shame and their mind is set on earthly things. As Paul says in Philippians 3, Jesus said that he who is not with him is against him. They're not simply neutral toward the cross. If you're not with Jesus, you're actually against him. This means by implication that you reject and despise its message and that you uh, 
want others to do the same. And so why do, why do people do this? Why do some people reject this great message of salvation through Christ? And that's our fourth question under consideration this morning. And we find the answer to that in verses 19 and 20. This is the judgment. That light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And there's the problem. The problem is not that the light hasn't come. The light has come. It's not that God didn't send His only begotten Son into the world that the world might be saved through Him. God did that. The problem is that men loved darkness rather than light. They preferred sin to righteousness. They preferred the kingdom of Satan over the kingdom of God. They loved darkness and refused to come to the light. They wanted nothing to do with the light. Their deeds were evil, and that's the way they liked it. They were well contented with the status quo. They wanted no penetrating light to shine onto their evil activities. They didn't want to be convicted as evildoers and put to shame. They reject the light because they are afraid of it, because they love darkness. Verses 19 and 20 are thus a strong testimony to the enslaving power of sin. Left to ourselves, we love sin and wickedness rather than the Lord. We prefer darkness over the light. And this is a reminder that that human autonomy is a myth. You have to serve someone or serve something. And the truth of the matter is that you will either be serving God or you will be serving sin. We come into this world serving sin and the only way of escape is if God himself intervenes and brings us out of darkness and into the light. Paul put it this way, Colossians 1, 13 and 14, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And that brings us then to our fifth and final question. What is the difference between those who believe and those who don't? And we see the answer to that question in the contrast that is presented between the lover of darkness in verses 19 and 20 versus the one who practices the truth down in verse 21. Verse 21 says that he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Now, strictly speaking, verses 19 through 21 don't show us or tell us how someone moves from the category of being one who loves darkness to becoming one who practices the truth. There are other passages that inform us about how someone moves from darkness to light. We just heard Colossians chapter 1 about God rescuing us, namely rescuing believers from the domain of darkness. Or uh, we read about how the move is made in the, the passage concerning the new birth earlier here in John chapter 3. How does someone move from darkness to light? They have to be born again. Ephesians 2.4 speaks in a similar manner of how God brings life to those who are spiritually dead. Those are passages that that tell us how people are brought by God from darkness to light. But verses 19 through 21 point out to us the contrast that exists in these two types of people. The one as he walks in darkness and the other as he walks in the light. And the difference is that the one who refuses to come to the light does so, as we've seen, because he loves the darkness, while the one who is walking in the light does so to show that his deeds may be manifested 
as having been wrought in God, which is to say that the good that he has done has been done in union with God and has been done by the strength which God supplies. He doesn't come to the light because he is, is arrogant and is proud of his good works. There's nothing intrinsically better about the one who walks in the light. His works, whatever they are, have been done by the power of God at work in his life, and as such he has nothing to hide. And if you're a Christian here this morning, two aspects of verse 21 should be an apt description of you in your day-to-day life. There should be no pride, and there should be nothing to hide. There should be no pride because your works have been wrought in God. Whatever good God has enabled you to do is just that, enabled by God. It's not you. It is God. And thus we read in Philippians 2.13, It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So there's, there's no pride that should come to us if we are walking in the light and our deeds are being manifested as having been wrought in God. No pride for us. And also there should be nothing to hide. Because if you're a Christian, you know that you can't hide anything from God. You can't hide anything from Christ. So please stop trying. Do not attempt to hide because it is futile. Confess your sins that you're ashamed of to Christ and receive, him and receive his grace. As we've already considered, this gospel is still good news for us even as believers. Verse 18 describes the difference between those who believe and those who don't from God's perspective. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So if you believe in Christ, you're not judged. Passed from death to life, there is now no condemnation for you because you are in Christ Jesus. But if you do not believe, you're already under judgment. And moreover, you will be judged by the Christ whom you are currently rejecting. You were under condemnation already because of your sins, and now... By rejecting the gospel, you're only aggravating the condemnation by refusing to believe in the only one who can save you. The difference between those who believe and those who don't, according to verse 18, is the difference between not being judged and being under judgment. Apart from faith in Christ, you are under condemnation. Those who believe in Jesus are not condemned. Those, those are the possibilities. And there are only two of them. Only two. The good news of the gospel, again, is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so I say to you, whoever you are, whatever you've done, no matter how awful it was, you too can pass from death to life. You too can pass from being under condemnation now to not being condemned any longer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray.